Well, good evening, Riverbend. As I told you Sunday, it is my distinct pleasure to be able to uh, introduce our speaker tonight. Um, I hope you enjoyed your dinner. I got to sit at the table with my two favorite teaching pastors that I've had. Um, pastor Scott, obviously you know. The other one is Pastor Kreloff. Pastor Kreloff has been the pastor at uh, Lakeside Community Chapel 42 years now? 40 years? I'm sorry, 40 years. <laughs> um, and like I said, uh, he dedicated me as a baby, he baptized me as a child, and he married me as a man. Yeah. <laughs> He's a graduate from uh, USF, Go Bulls, uh, where I graduated from. He's also a graduate from uh, Moody Bible Institute, and he uh, went to seminary at Tampa Theological Seminary, which was an extension of Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, he's a published author. He's written God's Plan for Israel, a great exposition of Romans 9 through 11. He also wrote um, Ple The Pleasures of Marriage, which is an exposition of the Song of Solomon, and a book on expository preaching. Um, I don't know. I'm just very so, I'm so very excited to, for you to meet him tonight. Uh, he's one of my favorite expositors. So, Pastor Kreloff. All right. Well, there I am. So what I was saying is that I feel like John MacArthur here. I saw this thing come up, and now I'm surrounded like Spurgeon. And so anyway, thank you. Thank you. I want to thank Pastor Scott for inviting me and Pastor Jerry for all of the details and to see my good friends here and others that I know from Riverbend. So thank you for your warm welcome. I also want you to see my Wife is here, Michelle, if you will stand. Yes, I want to acknowledge you. So, so. Well, how important is a person's name? That is what William Shakespeare wanted to know as he had Juliet ask that question, what's in a name? And you know, Juliet asked that because her Romeo belonged to a rival family by the name of the Montagues, and so she was not allowed to associate with him. Now, she said if he had any other name, that was her reasoning, then it wouldn't, it wouldn't matter. But the fact that he is a Montague, well, that is a problem. So she is complaining that Romeo's name, she feels, well, it's just meaningless. And so she says, what difference does his name really make? And that's why she answered her own question with the famous words, that which we call a rose by any other name, well, it would smell as sweet. Now, what Juliet said about flowers may be true, but uh, her words really don't apply to people. Names matter. What you call someone makes a difference. It can affect their lives. It can influence the way they are. In fact, one psychologist, he did a study of 15,000 teenagers and he discovered that those with odd or embarrassing names were in trouble with the law four times as much as the others. So names are important. Some of you will remember that years ago, Johnny Cash sang a song, a boy named Sue. Remember that? 
And the gist of the song is that his dad gave him this name, this girl's name, though he was a boy, so that he would grow up tough. And he did. He grew up tough. It did toughen him because of all of the abuse he took for that name Sue. Well, most parents wouldn't do that to their children, at least not today, at least not many parents. A person's name now is often chosen because of the way it sounds or it's in vogue or maybe it's a family name passed on from one generation to another. However, in the ancient world of the Bible, names had nothing to do with contemporary trends. Uh, no one named someone because it sounded hip or, or stylish. In Bible times, names were given to individuals to express either a certain quality that this person had or with the hope and desire that they would at some point acquire this quality. In other words, names were more of a description of a person than anything else. So, for example, the Lord named the first man Adam because the word Adam means earth. And he, since he was made from the dust of the earth, his name described him. The same thing with Abraham. God changed Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of a multitude, in order to reflect what he was to become the father of a multitude of the nation of Israel. And as you recall, remember the Lord Jesus changed the name of one of his vacillating disciples from Simon to Peter. And the name Peter, of course, means stone or a rock. It's a description of what Simon was eventually to become, rock solid, steady, a strong disciple. Now, if God is concerned that the names of his people convey some key truth about them, then how much more is he concerned that his name express truth about himself? So the question is, what is the name of God? What is God's name? Well, the Lord doesn't have only one name. He has revealed himself in the Bible by a multitude of names. And the reason for that is because no one name is able to adequately describe the infinite God. This is why we read in the Old Testament that God refers to himself by just a wide variety of names. Elohim, Jehovah, Adonai, El Shaddai, Jehovah Shalom, and on and on it goes. There are whole books written about the names of God. And they all describe a unique facet of God's character. You see, because God is so immeasurable, and God is so glorious and so majestic, there isn't just one name that can fully capture his radiant glory. Now, at Christmas time, there is a passage of scripture that we often refer to that presents four of the names that God has revealed for himself. Passage I'm referring to, as you well know, is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And here's what we read. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, the basic meaning, the essential meaning of these two verses is that seven 
800 years before Jesus was born in the village of Bethlehem, the prophet Isaiah predicted his coming as Israel's king and Messiah. And the language that he uses describes to us the uniqueness of this coming Messiah king. You see, the prophet said that he would be a child who would be born to us, which is a reference to Christ's humanity. In other words, he would be born just like any other human, as an infant, a baby, a child. But in addition, notice, Isaiah reveals that he'll also be a son who will be given to us. What does that mean? Well, this child would be the royal son of King David, the Messiah, the one who would sit upon David's throne during the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ, the messianic kingdom on earth. And he'll rule over the nations of the world. And that's why we read in this passage that the government will rest upon his shoulders. You see, what Isaiah is telling us is that the Messiah would enter this world as a little child, but he would grow up and one day he would rule the world. And so, over 2,000 years ago, our Lord did enter this world, and that's why we celebrate Christmas. But I want you to note something. Isaiah's prophecy really looks beyond the Messiah's birth to a time in the future when Christ will return to rule and reign over an earthly kingdom that will include all of the kingdoms and all of the governments of this world. Now, as you well know, this hasn't happened yet, but it will take place at the second coming of Christ. And at that time, he will establish a literal 1,000-year kingdom on earth. That's what the book of Revelation teaches. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, speaks of the saints who will reign with him for a 1,000 years. Now, I want you to watch this. It is with this future millennial kingdom in mind that Isaiah mentions these four names associated with the Messiah. And that tells us not only what Jesus is like in terms of his character, but also what his reign will be like in his earthly kingdom. In other words, these names reveal the character of his future reign on earth. I want you to listen closely because although this prophecy and these four names have specific reference to his reign in the coming kingdom, they also, and this is most important, they also describe truths about the Lord which are just as relevant and applicable for us today as they will be for those who will live during the millennial age. And the reason for this is because there is an aspect, an aspect of Christ's kingdom that has already arrived. Not the physical aspect, but there is a spiritual aspect of Christ's kingdom that's already here since Jesus presently reigns over the lives of everyone who believes in him as Savior, Lord, and King. See, as far as his present-day followers are concerned, the government of our lives really does rest upon his shoulders. So that all the truths that these four names convey about Jesus, they are very, very applicable for us. So tonight, I want us to look at these four names of Jesus so that we can understand more and we can experience more of the one whose birth we remember 
at this time of the year. Now, the first name that Isaiah mentions that describes Jesus is Wonderful Counselor. Isaiah begins this list of character-revealing names by telling us that Jesus is a counselor, but not just any counselor. Notice he calls him a wonderful counselor. And these two words, wonderful and counselor, need to be put together. This appears very clearly to be the intended thought here rather than two separate words, wonderful and counselor. And I say that because if you look at all the other descriptions, all the other names given of Jesus by the prophet, you have two connecting words. And so it only makes sense that that is exactly what Isaiah means when he says he's not simply wonderful and a counselor, but he is a wonderful counselor. So, what does this tell us about Christ? Well, the fact that he is a counselor means that he knows how to deal with our problems. I mean, that's what a counselor does. He gives us solutions to the tough issues that we all face. In other words, he does what any counselor is supposed to do. He gives us direction. He tells us how to live. That's the role of a counselor. But by calling him wonderful counselor, Isaiah is telling us that Jesus counsels us better than anyone else. You see, this Hebrew word that's translated wonderful, it means exceptional. It means distinguished. That is to say, Jesus Christ is a special counselor. He's unique. He's different. He's better than any counselor you have ever been to or ever could go to. Now, I'm sure that you have some really good counselors here at Riverbend, but as good as these counselors are, Jesus is better. He's better by far, and he's a better counselor, not only because his counsel is always right, and it's always on target, since his wisdom and insight are impeccable, but also because Jesus is God, and therefore he knows everything there is to know about you, to know about me, which is something that no mere human counselor is capable of knowing. See, human counselors only know what we tell them, right? They only know what we tell them. They can't read our hearts. They can't read our minds. They don't know our motives. But Jesus, being divine, he knows exactly what a human counselor cannot know, namely your motivations, your heart, what, what drives you. The Lord knows your thoughts, he knows your desires. He knows your needs. He knows your disappointments. He knows your expectations. And he knows everything else about you. He knows why you do what you do. And that's why his counsel is so very wonderful. Because he always knows the right issues to address in our lives. He knows if your problem is due to your own sinful pride, your own selfish ambition, your unrealistic expectations, your refusal to forgive others, and any other issue. He knows. Listen to what David wrote concerning how much the Lord knew about him and therefore how much he knows about each one of us. I'm referring to Psalm 139 verses 1 through 4 and where we read this, O Lord, David said, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. David tells us that the Lord knows when we sit down 
and when we get up. He knows our thoughts. He knows what we're going to do each day of our lives. He knows what you're going to do tomorrow, tonight. He knows when we lie down at night, when we go to sleep. He even knows what we're going to say today before we say it. And if you're thinking, oh, I don't know if that's true, he knows that because he knows everything that you're thinking. See, Jesus is our wonderful counselor because he knows us like no one else knows us. He knows every move you make. He knows every thought that enters your mind, every step you take, every activity you do, every word you will ever utter before you ever do utter. He alone knows and understands what's really going on inside of us. He knows what we're really like. He knows what drives us. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus knows us better than we know ourselves. Because sometimes we can deceive ourselves into thinking more highly about us than we really should. Or we can have a distorted self-righteous view of ourselves. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is more is more deceptive than all else. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? The truth is that we don't even understand our own hearts because our hearts are, as well the prophet Jeremiah tells us, desperately wicked, deceitful. And our hearts, folks, will lie to us, telling us at times what we want to hear rather than what we need to hear. But our all-knowing, wonderful counselor, he sees our deceitful and sinful hearts and he knows the truth about us and therefore he puts his finger directly on our problem and he tells us what we need to hear. But there's something else that's important to know about Jesus being a wonderful counselor and that is that in becoming a man he completely understands, note this, experientially and with incredible compassion the problems we face. Concerning our Lord's understanding of what we go through and his merciful heart, here's what we read in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. The writer says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, here's the application, here's what you do with this information. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The writer is telling, that, telling us that Jesus has been there, done that. As a human, he sympathizes with us. He is the God-man. He, he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He sympathizes with us. He understands our weaknesses. He has been one of us. He's merciful. And he therefore will give us help in time of need. Concerning how his humanity qualifies him to be such a wonderful counselor. One Bible teacher wrote this. He said, because he was born into this world, grew up, labored, suffered, and died, he is able to enter into the experiences that perplex and burden you. How many times the professional counselor hears, oh, you just don't understand. But those words can never honestly be spoken to Jesus Christ because he does understand. And folks, Jesus understands with a heart of mercy 
a heart of compassion exactly what you're going through right now in your life. He empathizes with your problems, with your worries, with your fears. He understands. But not only does he offer you his heart of understanding, but as a wonderful counselor, you know what? He offers you real solutions, real root heart solutions to the perplexing issues that you're facing, issues that are often confusing and, and difficult to think through. And he offers you these real solutions. How? Oh, by his counsel. That's why he's called the wonderful counselor. So the question is, how does Jesus counsel us? In other words, how does he become your personal, wonderful counselor? Well, first of all, you need to make sure that you've received him as your Lord and Savior. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 say, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now these verses speak of those who have received Christ. And what, what we read here is that to receive Christ is to believe on him, to, to trust him. To believe on him means more than simply believing that he exists. It means to open your heart to him as your personal savior and Lord, welcoming him into your life by recognizing that you are a sinner and need to be saved from the wrath of God. See, the Bible says that God is holy and just, and therefore he demands judgment for your sin. But when Christ died on the cross, he died in the place of sinners like us, experiencing God's judgment as a perfect substitute sin bearer. And when you cast yourself upon his mercy, trusting that his death on the cross was for your sin and is the only basis for, for you going to heaven when you die, he forgives your sin and you enter into the most wonderful relationship with him. A relationship in which you will now listen to his counsel as he addresses those issues that perplex you. You have to know him first before you will listen to his counsel. And how exactly does he counsel us? Well, he counsels us through his written word, the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. It is all breathed out by God and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Listen to the following verses which speak of God's counsel through his word. Psalm 119.24, your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. Psalm 73, verse 24, with your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Psalm 32, verse 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now, these and there are many other similar verses, they make it abundantly clear that Christ's wonderful counsel comes from the truths of Scripture. You see, when you understand and apply biblical truth to your life, you are following our Lord's counsel. This is how he counsels us. But it's your responsibility, it's my responsibility to open up the Bible, to read it with the goal of understanding its meaning, and then we personally apply his word to our, to our lives. So with January 1st, only a few weeks away, this would be a great time to decide to read through the Bible in the upcoming year. It'd be a very systematic way to hear Christ's wonderful counsel on a daily 
basis. So I, I encourage you to do that. It's a wonderful, wonderful discipline to have. So the first name that Isaiah mentions that describes Messiah is he's the wonderful counselor. There's a second name that the prophet mentions that speaks of the Lord and describes him. He's also called Mighty God. Isaiah says his name will be called Mighty God. Now, it really shouldn't surprise us to read that Jesus is called Mighty God because the Bible makes it abundantly clear that Jesus Christ, the one born as a Jewish infant in Bethlehem, is none other than God. Fully human, fully God. It is an amazing truth. It is a mystery. I'm teaching that, in fact, now at the church I pastor in Clearwater, we're going through the Gospel of Luke, and the Christmas messages are coming a little bit too early before Christmas. But we're going over that uh, about how Jesus was totally human, but also totally divine. God became a man. Now, Isaiah has already mentioned this truth in chapter 7 of his book when he predicted that a virgin would conceive and give birth to a son, and he would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And now... A few chapters later, here in chapter 9, the prophet is reiterating the very same truth, telling us that the coming king and Messiah, the royal son of David, will be more than a human. He will be deity. He will be God himself. That's precisely what the New Testament says about Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. But I want you to notice something. Notice that Isaiah didn't simply call Jesus God. He called him mighty God, which means that he was stressing his divine power, his strength, his might as God. You see, unlike, unlike other Old Testament Jewish kings whose power was always limited, this divine king possesses absolute authority, possesses all power without any limitations. Now, in the context of Isaiah 9, what Isaiah is saying is that Jesus Christ will reign supreme in the coming kingdom age. However, a very valid question for us to ask then is, how does Christ's supreme power, how does it affect us today? We're not in the kingdom age, but how does it affect us today? How do we apply this truth about Jesus being the mighty God to our lives now before his physical kingdom comes to earth? Well, to recognize Christ as mighty God means that you recognize that by his power, he governs, he controls all of the events of life and that absolutely nothing occurs by chance or by accident or by fortune or misfortune or luck because it is all under his sovereign control. First time I preached this many years ago at our church, I said words to that effect. I said, and there is no misfortune in the Christian life. Afterwards, this older woman, very stoic looking woman, came up to me, didn't crack a smile, and she said, I want you to know, Steve, I am misfortune." I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, my maiden name was Fortune. So I used to be Miss Fortune, and then I got married. And so, well, it ruined my theology there. But you understand, in, in the Christian life, there's really no such thing as luck or misfortune, or you were in the, the wrong place at the wrong time. Listen, everything in our world 
is under God's sovereign control so that the entire universe exists to serve him. That's what the Bible declares. We read in Psalm 119 verses 90 and 91, you establish the earth and it stands. They stand this day according to your ordinances for all things are your servants. Now let that sink in. In other words, everything in the physical universe, including the earth, exists because of God's sovereign decrees. And they stand as his servants do exactly what he commands them to do. That's what this verse is saying. This is how sovereign our Lord is. And therefore, he is sovereign over everything in your life. And just knowing that, you know what? Just knowing that ought to take the worry out of life, ought to take fear out of life, because you can trust that he has ordained everything that comes into your life. Listen to what David wrote, once again, Psalm 139, verse 16. And in your book were written, were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was none of them. Now, this doesn't just mean that God has planned out how many days you'll live. That's part of this. But it also means that he's ordained every single event in all of the days that you will live. Listen to what Jerry Bridges in his classic book, Trusting God. If you've not read this, I highly recommend it. This is what he wrote, very similar to what I just said, only he'll say it a lot better. He said, all the experiences in David's life and ours, day by day, were written down in God's book before he was even born. One of the most inspiring truths is that God has a distinct plan for each one of us in sending us into this world. This plan embraces not only his original creation of us, but also the family and social setting into which we were born. It includes all of the ups and downs of life, all the seemingly chance or random happenings, and all, the, all of the sudden and unexpected turn of events, both good and bad, that occur in our lives. <coughs> all these situations and circumstances, though they may appear only as happenstance to us, were written in God's book before one of them came to be. So I say God has not only ordained how many days you're going to live, but all of the events of those days, and that includes such things as your health, the timing of your death, your finances, your family issues, your job, your retirement, who you talk to each day, and everything else included in your day, down to the smallest of details. That's how sovereign God is. See, you don't have to worry about anything because in addition to being all powerful so that you can trust him to be in control of all the events of life, Jesus is also good and he's wise and he's loving. If God were only all power and nothing else, that's what we call a monster, but he's far from that. He's good. He's loving. He's wise. So if you're a believer in him, you can count. Count on the fact that whatever he brings into your life, though it may be painful, it is ultimately for your benefit. Why? Because Romans 8, 28 and 29 say this, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. That means 
for believers, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, why does it work together for good? God is so sovereign that Paul is saying that God uses all things in life, good, bad, neutral. God uses all of that for our good. What is the good? Well, he goes on to tell us, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. Listen, everything in life that God has ordained for you, he has ordained to bring him glory through you, but also to benefit you by making you more and more Christ-like in your character. You may not see it at the time, but it's, that's God's purpose. Listen, he who sustains the universe also sustains you. And he is in control of all the people and the various decisions they make that affect your life. That's not out of his control. It's under his control. Your employer, your teachers, your, your coaches, your family members, your relatives, even government leaders at the highest level. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. So listen, if God, and this is the point, if God is in control over the most powerful people on earth, kings, world leaders, and the decisions that they make, then he certainly is in control over the people who impact your life and my life. And that means that you can trust him without becoming bitter, and resentful, even when these people make decisions that you don't happen to agree with. Our mighty God knows what he's doing. He can be trusted with everything because he is good, he is wise, as well as sovereign and mighty. In addition to being a wonderful counselor and mighty God, the third descriptive name that Isaiah calls Jesus is Eternal Father. Now, at first glance, this name for Jesus, it, it doesn't seem to be theologically Correct, because in the Trinity, the Son of God is distinguished from God the Father as well as from God the Holy Spirit. Yet Isaiah here describes Jesus as he calls him eternal Father. So why does he say that? What does he mean by this description? Well, it is always critical in interpreting Scripture to determine what the words meant to the original readers. And in this case, it would be to the Jewish people living during Bible times. And with that in mind, it's important then to know that the word father would have meant not simply a, a father, but also the concept is here of an author or better yet, an originator, the source. For example, we read in John 8, that Jesus called Satan the father of lies. And what he meant by that is that Satan was the source or, or the originator of lies. You trace all lying back to Satan. So when Isaiah says that the Messiah will be called eternal father, he simply means that he is the originator. He is the author of eternity in the sense that he is eternal, he is everlasting, so that his rule, note this, will last forever and ever. Now think how meaningful this prophecy must have been to the nation of Israel in light of the promise that their Messiah was coming to rule over his kingdom on earth. And I say that because the entire history of Israel consisted of a long list of kings who lived, who reigned, and then what happened? Well, they died, all of them. A good king would rule Israel for a time, and there would be blessing, there would be righteousness for the people under him. Often when he died, a bad king replaced him, evil king, it only resulted in great hardship for the nation. That's the history of Israel. 
This is the way governments are today. They change constantly. I don't have to convince you of that. New leaders come, they go, and how the people of that nation are treated depends upon who's ruling over them. But Isaiah's point is to say that with Jesus Christ, you never have to be concerned with a change of leadership. You know why? He's not going anywhere. He's staying. He's not going to die. He can't be impeached. He can't be voted out of office. His rule is eternal. And therefore, there won't be an end to his righteous reign. That's what Isaiah meant when he said in chapter 9, verse 7, there'll be no end to the increase of his government or a peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness, notice, from then on and forevermore. That's his point. So how does this, truth, how does this truth then affect us today, even before his kingdom on earth is established? Well, if you're a true Christian, then you can rest in the fact that you are totally safe and you are totally secure under Christ's rule over you. Because there'll never come a time when he will step aside and allow another person to reign over you in his place. There'll, there'll never be a time where he will stop caring for you. There'll never be a time where he'll stop providing for you. There'll never be a time where he will fail to be there for you. He will be with you forever and he will never, ever abandon you. So in a world of constant change, Jesus, the one who is the same yesterday, for, uh, today and forever... He promises to rule over our lives with perfect consistency and forever. And that's the one whose birth we celebrate. He's called Wonderful Counselor. He's called Mighty God. He's called Eternal Father. But there is a fourth and then final name that Isaiah says that describes Jesus the Messiah, which is he's the Prince of Peace. Now, what Isaiah means by this is that during the millennial kingdom of Messiah, Jesus will be known as the Prince of Peace. Why? Because he will rule over the nations of the world, not as a ruthless tyrant, but as a benevolent peacemaker, as one whose reign will be characterized by peace, not war. But how is Jesus the Prince of Peace today? How do we apply this? Well, there are two ways in which Jesus brings peace into our lives. First of all, he brings peace between you and God when you initially trust him to be your savior and Lord. This is what Paul taught in Romans 5.1 when he says being justified by faith, we have peace with God. What does the apostle mean? Well, he, he means that by the death of Christ in which he was judged for the sins of those who would believe in him, he secured your peace with God. Up to that point, you were at war with God due to your sin, due to your rebellion against God. But Christ has reconciled you. If I could put it this way, I say the war is over between you and God. You're at peace with him. He's at peace with you. Secondly, though, there is an internal experiential side to Jesus bringing peace to our troubled hearts. Peace meaning a calmness of heart, a satisfied heart, a composed heart, it comes to us even in the midst of the most difficult and trying adversities of life. <clears throat> As we trust God, how? By casting our cares upon him so that we no longer worry. That's what Peter said. Casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. I love the verse in Isaiah 26.3 which says, The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. 
I really prefer another translation which puts it this way. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Paul put it so wonderfully in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. He said, be anxious for nothing. Stop there. Think about that. Don't worry about anything. That's a command. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then Paul said, if you do that, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, all human comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, we don't understand it, but we can experience God's peace when we cast our cares upon him. I ask you tonight, do you have this peace? Do you need to make peace with God? The only way to do that is by faith in Christ, who by his death satisfied God's wrath and anger over your sins. And once you know Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, as your King, then he will be your wonderful counselor. He'll guide you. He'll direct you through his word. He will be your mighty God who you can trust with all of your cares. Cast them upon him. He will be your eternal father who will always be there for you. And he'll be your prince of peace who when trusted will bring peace and calmness to your heart regardless of your circumstances. So I urge you, make sure you know Christ. And if you do know Christ as Savior, then enjoy him and experience him for all that he is. And then you'll, you will have the most wonderful Christmas you have ever had. I'm going to pray, and I know that Pastor Scott's going to come and close us in prayer, but let me pray for you. Father, thank you for allowing us to look into your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are so wonderful, that you, you are so precious to us, Lord. I pray that what has been shared tonight will be absorbed by us, everyone here applied by us and that we might experience all that you have for us from your word as you have revealed yourself in these four names. I pray for anyone here who doesn't know Christ as Savior. I pray you'll draw them to yourself and I pray for those who do know you, Lord. May they hear the word and apply the word to their lives. All of this we pray in your precious name. Amen. I got to know Steve this last year. Um, Paul had been trying to get us together for a long time, and uh, we just immediately hit it off. I heard him preach, and I heard him handle a text verse by verse and excellently describe God's word and uh, with good exposition. And so uh, Steve and I have hit it off and uh, have a lot of things in common, and we enjoy each other. So Steve, thank you, and Michelle for coming over and uh, being part of this special night. Uh, just before we close, I want to thank our Persevering Saints. Persevering Saints is a ministry to our seniors in our church. That's a large group, and we're very grateful for them. Um, we thank the Lord for them as elders. <laughs> we constantly pray for you, and we, we want the next generation, which is my age, behind you to be ready to serve like you guys have served this church. And uh, So we're very thankful for you. Thank you for your kindness, and so many of you worked to put this great banquet on. We praise the Lord for that. 
I do want to thank the kitchen crew and Gabriel especially. What a blessing we have as a church to have a ministry of food. Uh, that's always a good ministry, isn't it? Um, but to have a cook like Gabriel who just serves tirelessly. And uh, if you see Gabriel in our halls on Sunday mornings or Wednesdays, please thank him and just uh, praise the Lord for him. And then all the volunteers that help to make an event like this. Um, and then, you know, we feed like this every Wednesday night. Uh, a great meal is put on and so many serve in such wonderful ways. So make sure you grab somebody in that kitchen crew and thank them. Remember that wreath there in the center of your table if you do not win one tonight. Um, if you'd like to have that just outside those doors, uh, Miss Pat will be out there and uh, you can give her $10 and you can take that wreath home. I hope many of you uh, do that on the way out. Um, a couple other services are going to come up. Our Christmas service, church service, is going to be the Sunday before uh, Christmas, uh, which is the, I want to say 19th, is that right? Uh, 19th, and so that's going to be a, uh, an outstanding service for us. Tremendous amount of music and special numbers and uh, large choirs, multi-generational choirs. I believe even our Crossroads is going to be involved with some music there too. So we're very excited about that service. So please, please make that part of your Christmas celebration. If you have family in town, one of the things I've heard people say through the years, well, we had family so that we can come to church. Ugh. <laughs> You tell them you're going to church and you're welcome to, be with, to come with you because that's the best thing you could give them this Christmas season is bring them to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So make every effort to be a part with that. But just after um, that Sunday after uh, the 19th is our Christmas Eve Eve service. Uh, we have a great service um, out on the lawn. Um, what a blessing that God has given us to gather out in our property. This is a service that's really bringing in a lot of other churches. I think last year we had over 700 people attend that uh, service, and we think it'll be even bigger this year. So bring a chair to that. But one of the ways, as you remember last year, that we sold these box of chocolates for $5, um, and they came with a great invitation with a track on the back even. tells who God is and who the Lord Jesus is and so forth. But it's a track and an and a invitation for your neighbors or coworkers or family members. We sold every one of these last year. And Angels and Phelps has been such a great help to our ministry here. They've provided another great box of chocolate. This is a great way to walk next door and say, hey, would you come to our Christmas Eve service? You've got to give them something anyway. They live next to you. Uh, and so not, why not have them here and come to the hear the gospel that night? Bring a chair for them. Bring a blanket. Bring a smile. We're going to have a great time on that evening. So please uh, don't forget those as well. Well, let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. We'll look forward to seeing you on Sunday morning. Father, we thank you for this time together. Thank you for sending your servant Steve and his bride Michelle, Lord. Thank you for these great names that we're reminded of tonight. We serve a wonderful Savior, and we thank you that he gives us wonderful counsel, Lord. Lord, for those that are here, doubtlessly in a room this size with this many people, there are those that don't know Jesus. And so what wonderful counsel you gave us. You said, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. There's no one who can get to the Father except you, Jesus. What great counsel. That's eternal counsel. And so we thank you for this great reminder that Pastor Steve has given us today from your word. May this resonate in our hearts. Lord, bless these folks. Give them sweet rest tonight. And may we start a season that is truly worshipful of our Messiah our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen. You are dismissed.